This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and thank you for downloading this special Eye on Education podcast. This week, we looked at the growing epidemic of exam stress for secondary school students. That's with Nicholas Radbourne, the Director of Studies for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and also Susan Roberts from Which School Advisor. Plus, we got advice on how pupils can get university scholarships and spoke to a student from Bangladesh who has managed to get into a top-tier college. We also crossed to a charity school in Kenya for our My Classroom feature, where we spoke to a teacher in an unusual school. And we found out how uniforms can reduce school absenteeism by 62% and how that fact inspired Matthew Benjamin to found his company, Capes. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and a very warm welcome back. And as I mentioned, it is time for our special Eye on Education segment. And now first up, uh, Zena and I are going to take a little bit of a look at the top news headlines uh, that have come out over the last few days. Because there's always plenty to talk about when it comes to education. And my goodness, does it affect a lot of the families here in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, And that population is growing. In fact, Dubai's private school population has increased to more than 300,000 children for the first time after growing by more than 14,000 since the start of the academic year. That's 14,000 more students since September. That's astonishing. It's incredible. And honestly, I think it's a great thing. Uh, That means lots more parents on school run, on the school run, and we have a lot more listeners every Friday. Yay! (laughs) Uh, Official statistics show that more than 303,000 pupils are now enrolled in the Emirates private schools. That's up from nearly 5% from September 2022. And it is above the pre-pandemic level of uh, just over 295,000 children uh, between 2019 and 2020. Now, I mean, what do you think could be behind this massive influx of students? Well, I think it's very evident. I've seen new students in our classes, in my children's classes. They aren't necessarily bigger classes in terms of number, but I see new faces there every day. And I think that uh, the UAE, because it's because the UAE has changed visa rules and uh, has really made it easier for many people to find jobs here, uh, you know, get their families over here and Uh, for some residents, prolong their stay here. So in my school, we've seen an influx of, you know, students or families who choose to move to Dubai to escape the pandemic chaos in their countries. In my child's class, I see new students from Africa, Eastern Europe and East Asia. uh, And I'm really loving the diversity. And I think it's indicative of what uh, of the effects of the UAE's decisions in terms of visa rules. I I think a lot of it is how the UAE managed the the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Because compared to other countries, for example, I mean, just look at Shanghai now. Like if I was an international person, you know, from a different country living in Shanghai right now, I'd be like, I'm done. I'm clear. Like, let's, yeah. let's move to Dubai. You know, if you're already an expat, why not move to Dubai? I know of at least three families, four families, who've moved from Singapore and Hong Kong in the last year. They were very happy there until the pandemic. And all of a sudden, they're like, no, we cannot have a situation where the children can't go to school. Or in Hong Kong, they separate children from parents. If a child comes down with COVID, they are put into the isolation hospitals away from their parents. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, that isn't that would be an I'd leave the next day, frankly. That's that, for that both citizens and expats? Yeah. 
Wow. I would literally leave the next day. If there was a possibility, if my son started coughing and there was a possibility of him having to be on his own in a room for two to three weeks, I'd be out the door in a minute and I wouldn't go back. <laughs> so it's not so... And, and you compare that to the situation here in Dubai, the sort of lot and the UAE, wider UAE, you know, the logical approach that they took to COVID-19, the lockdown, which was effective, the curfews, which we all know they called the the cleaning, what do they call it? The sterilization campaign, yes. all taken, you know, logically, step by step, the vaccination program. It, I think ultimately what's happened is, you know, I know that I don't want to sound too like, like, yay, UAE, but they really nailed it. Yes, they, <laughs> like, they really have. You kind of can't it. argue with it. They really, like, like, we've been very, very lucky here. The kids have been in school, back in school since last September. Uh, so it's not surprising. I have to say, I'm not surprised that lots of people have moved over. Yeah, UAE. Give me a flag. Give me a flag. You need a you need a sound for that, just like the drum roll. <laughs> Whenever you have a yay UAE moment. I know it happens worryingly frequently. Uh, where is my unbiased journalistic attitude? Disappeared. <laughs> uh, right, thousands of pupils, meanwhile, at Abu Dhabi's private and charter schools were back in the classroom on on Monday. Obviously, the schools in Abu Dhabi went back to in-classroom learning uh, quite a while ago now, but They've now completely abolished distance learning, haven't they, Z? Exactly. And that means hundreds of them experienced face-to-face lessons for the first time in two years since 2020, since the pandemic kicked off, which is, you know, such a distant past from now, including those with medical exemptions. Pupils are no longer allow, uh, are no longer allowed to opt for distance learning in Abu Dhabi. They must always attend classes in person. There's also a circular sent to schools with revised rules. Uh, in fact, Georgia, I saw a LinkedIn post by a principal in a private school in LA and he posted a picture of all the materials they used to enforce uh, COVID safety rules and they included you know signs that said skip this seat uh, social distancing and his hope is for sanitizers and you know things like uh, other paraphernalia associated with uh, with COVID becoming a thing of the past and this is of course another step towards normality and away from from COVID. It's so interesting that so many parents and so many you know were choosing to keep their their, their kids at home, even though the schools had gone back. I, I, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary to me. I was desperate to get my kids back into school. But I know that as the children get older, some children do work better at home. And, and oddly enough, the pandemic gave them the opportunity to try that out. But yes, so Dubai abolished uh, distance learning back in October. Uh, and now Abu Dhabi has done the same. Uh, now, uh, interesting question for you, Z. Do your kids miss Expo? Because <laughs> you went every weekend. Yes, 100%. They miss Expo. And they're always asking me what's happening at Expo. And I don't have the heart to tell them that, you know, it's it's basically empty now and they're turning it into something else. It's over. It's, it's over. <laughs> they took. They started taking the flags and things down literally the next day. Like if they didn't hang around, that site is not going to be empty for a while. Uh, but it's fair to say that it was a huge success from uh, the point of view of the Expo Schools program. Uh, One million students from across the Emirates visited Expo 2020 on school trips. Uh, my kids went at least one each uh, and they were a huge part of Expo's success. Uh, they had a wide range of exciting initiatives. Uh, I'm sure all of anyone listening to this knows their kids went along to it. Uh, they went to the thematic districts. Uh, there were also uh, special programs such as the Expo 2020 Young Stars. I remember seeing the stages uh, filled at one stage with like what looked like a sort of band, like band camp. You know, they were twirling sticks. 
I saw one of those near the U.S. Pavilion, and What's I thought it was called? a. What's that called? What's the stick sure. twirling? If you know what the stick twirling thing <laughs> is called. It's like with a band. It was quite American in style, actually. Maybe it was an American school. That's exactly what I saw. And they also had the Expo Young Innovators. Uh, that was designed to get the younger generation to be agents of change. Uh, there was the Next Generation World Majlis, uh, where students were encouraged to share their perspective of the program for People and Planets theme weeks. I know my kids went to, uh, they went to the Sustainability District, I think. Both of both lots went there and went around the sustainability. And then they went to go and splash in Brazil. Brazil was a huge hit. Yeah, I know, because of the... It was just a giant puddle. A puddle of water. <laughs> but for some reason, it was cooler than that. And, and I saw amazing dance uh, performances where they would, you know, they started on the stage above the giant puddle and then they would go in the puddle and splash and they would splash people in time to the drums. Gosh. And of course, it was quite hot in October when I was there, so people didn't seem to mind. But yeah, it is extraordinary um, how... Uh, how Expo 2020 really did touch on everyone's lives. Yeah, look at you reliving your Expo memories. I know you spent a lot of time there. I spent a lot, a lot of time there. I think it helped me get my job. I think Expo helped me get my job here because I did all those videos from the Expo site and I think that it helped me become more fluent on camera and ultimately more fluent on mic. So I think Expo, I've I've literally... There we go, Expo! Go, Expo! (laughs) Go, UAE! Uh, It does lead us nicely into our next topic, Z. Yes, our next story is basically, uh, it's off college time. CBSE students concerned about time management ahead of their exams. And that's according to school heads. Now, this article was written by uh, our former colleague Nandini Sarkar. Hello, Nandini. Hi. Uh, As CBSE students face board examinations in a different format for the first time... uh, uh, principals of the Indian Affiliated Board in the UAE say pupils are most concerned about time management, as I said. So CBSC exams for grade 10 and 12, they're being conducted over two terms for this academic year. Term 1 exams are over. Uh, they were conducted in November and December. And those are objective multiple choice questions. Now, this one is more difficult, the Term 2 one, uh, which begins on the 26th of April because it is a subjective one. So each set of exams cover 50% of the curriculum. So it's basically, maybe it's easier to memorize things than actually... Well, it's a different style of study, isn't it? I remember when I did French, we were the first year to do the new style of French A-level. And so we spent two years studying in a certain style and then went into the exam and none of us got A's. Like literally not the whole, everyone who was predicted to get an A, none of us got them. And ultimately, you know, the parents started to complain. It was like, well, you clearly taught the syllabus wrong and it looks like this is what's happened here that mm-hmm. not that it's been taught wrong but that it is a different style of syllabus and some head teachers are saying that that pupils are therefore anxious about these new subjective questions because it's a different format to what they're used to uh, but lots of schools have conducted you know several practice examinations so hopefully that will mean that the pupils feel ready Exactly. And these people, you know, let's keep in mind, they're still recovering. They're still reeling from the effects of the pandemic. There is some learning loss there within the two years that they didn't go to, they didn't attend their classes or learn their lessons properly. So I would understand why these students are anxious. All the best to you. And I hope you guys pass with flying colors, especially those in the UAE. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, We are going to be continuing our conversation about exam stress over the next few minutes. We're going to be joined uh, by which school? advisor and also uh, by the Royal Grammar School Dubai Guildford uh, sorry Guildford
Salford, Dubai. Uh, Nicholas Radbourne, who is the Director of Studies there, will join us to talk about how children can manage exam stress. Obviously, uh, it is going to be particularly a particularly tense time for children who are going into their exams now because, you know, a bit like when I did my, you know, French A-level, uh, it was a new syllabus and it was a new style of studying. They've had disruption over the last couple of years and I'm sure that that might add to a little bit of nervousness. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Now, students preparing for GCSE and A-level exams should start revising in earnest right now in order to avoid greater stress as exam time draws closer. That is according to experienced teachers and education experts who are pointing to the fact that this year's candidates have have actually faced quite extraordinary disruption to their studies over the last couple of years. Now, while pupils have been luckier than most here in the United Arab Emirates, exam stress is always a challenge. Joining me now to discuss this subject is Nicholas Radbourne. He is Director of Studies for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai, and he joins me on Microsoft Teams. We are live. Hello, Nicholas. How are you? Good morning, Georgia. I'm very well, thank you. Hello, good morning. I always find it strange calling teachers by their first name. I basically feel like I ought to be calling you <laughs> Mr. Radbourne. Otherwise, it's I'm, just too modern no. and newfangled. <laughs> I, I, still, I still meet children now who I taught 20 years ago, and they will still call me Mr. Radbourne. It's, it's, it's very strange. They, they find it very, very difficult to say. Yeah, yeah. it's only right and proper. Uh, now, exams still feel quite a long way off, at least in the British curriculum. Um, but yes, as I mentioned in the queue there, education experts are suggesting that they start thinking about revising now. Why is that, do you think? Uh, I think I think it's really important they start as early as possible. I, I, it's learning how to how to revise. I mean, the students learn how to learn, uh, but it's just as important for them to learn how to revise. So whenever we, I, you know, I'm, I'm putting somebody together for them, you, you, you're trying to go, right, as an individual, how do you revise? And a lot of students won't have a clue. They'll just sit there and go through their book. What they need to do is learn what techniques they need to use. And, you know, I'll look at students are sitting assessments in year seven onwards all the way through in most schools uh, so they need to learn how to prepare for those assessments so each child's individual each child is different each child learns in a different way and each child revises a different way myself I'm a visual learner uh, I like things visual I like pictures I like videos that's the best way for me to learn and I think the earlier the student so the pupil learns how to actually um, revise the better for them. So when they get to their GCSEs, it's no surprise. They know, right, I'm going to sit down. I've got this crucial time where I've got to pull this this effort in and I'm not wasting that effort. I'm actually prioritising it and really focusing on the way I'm going to learn, the way I'm going to revise the best possible way. Do you know, even... Starting our conversation now, I'm casting my mind back to revising for my GCSEs and A-levels. And I have to say, you know, even the memory of it is making my pulse go up. I really <laughs> found it hard. I really found it hard. I remember oh, yeah. making notes and using highlighters and having special cards and spending an awful lot of time writing stuff down, which I wonder whether was the right way to go about it. I, I mean, do you think children are sort of going to be 
dramatically disadvantaged this year, potentially because of the COVID disruption that we've seen over the last couple of years. Taking taking note of the fact that obviously in the United Arab Emirates, people people you know the pupils got off lightly compared to other countries. I think it's actually, in a way, it's it's helped a lot of a lot of pupils understand how to uh, work independently. Uh, that kind of blended learning they had to go through, they suddenly had to learn how to work far more independently and actually find resources for themselves. And I think it's it shows a real huge resilience from the students. It's incredible the students I've worked with uh, over the last few years. Um, I've worked with GCSE groups who've, who've really kind of had to work incredibly hard to make sure they were prepared for the exams. Now, teachers are putting things in place, putting support in place and helping them out. But actually that independent learning, that resilience that a lot of the students have learned from working from home has been invaluable and actually has helped enhance what they're actually doing in their lessons. Now, I know that's I know I, I know that it's been incredibly stressful and it's it's created an awful lot of anxiety for our students and I think their well-being has been at the heart of most schools. I certainly hear at RGS, the well-being is is fundamental to the way we work with our students. Um, and I think thinking about that all the way through, but it's how to support those students through that sort of process. But I actually think they've shown through their perseverance, through that resilience, to actually, well, actually, how can I use this to my, my benefit? And I've worked with students who are so much better now independent learning, who in the past, they just sit there in class and just listen. Now they'll go home and actually, actually, how can I, how can I really learn a little bit more about it? How can I take this a little bit further? So actually, I'm even more prepared when it comes to those GCSEs. I mean, there's the students are one component of this. The other component is, of course, the parents who have to deal with trying to persuade their, uh, you know, stubborn children to sit down and revise. Any techniques to for them? Oh, oh so many. I, I, was, I was saying, I was saying to you earlier about how that's the, the hardest question I get asked by by parents. I'm a parent myself. I've got two boys who are now um, at university. And they learnt in completely different ways. And how I supported them was that sort of in, in, in two different ways. But actually, the fundamental bit is you're there for them. And I think that's the most important thing, even when they don't want you there, uh, which is quite Most awesome of the something. time. <laughs> you, yes, go up and revise. Uh, I don't want to. So, But I think it's that, um, that willing, you're there for them. You're supporting them. You're showing patience when... They're really struggling in that level of anxiety, especially around GCSEs and A-levels, those exam periods, you know, whatever, whatever they're, they're, they're taking. Uh, it's when you have to be your most patient, your most supportive. And being there for them is really important. I mean, there's loads of studies that say how important parental engagement is, you know, and just being there to support them. But My. then it's the, all the other bits you can do to actually, because you can be, you can do so many things for them. You can help support them. You can be their bank, so you're buying them all the resources they need. You can be their uh, project manager, organising, you know, going to the theatre because they're doing this thing in drama they, or, or English and they need to see this play. There's loads of ways you can support them, and it's being clever about that and actually, you know, just being there when you need to. And I think that's the, that's the biggest thing I'd say to parents. Just be there. Be supportive, even when it's difficult because they're going to be anxious, they're going to be stressful, stress, sorry. Um, and it, and it's just being, you know, being supported. My, I had yeah. one child who was brilliant, independent learner, got on with it, another one who needed constant support. But I was there for both of them in different ways. 
Oh, it's so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. So really fantastic to speak to you live. Uh, Nicholas Radbourne, Director of Studies for Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Hello there, welcome back. We are focusing on exam stress in our special education segment today. As experienced teachers have said that students preparing for GCSE and A-level exams should start revising in earnest right now. Education experts are also pointing to the fact that this year's candidates have faced extraordinary disruption to their studies over the last couple of years due to the pandemic. Now, we talk about exam stress on a regular basis. And let's be honest, exams are basically the bane of most parents' and pupils' lives. They didn't have to take them. Do you remember? They were they were assessed by their teachers in the UK over the last couple of years. And I just wonder whether, like in many situations, the COVID-19 pandemic has made experts, education experts in particular, take a look at the sort of the concept of exams with fresh eyes. Because, you know, in many ways, you know, we all thought that we couldn't work from home. And now most of us seem to be doing it, as far as I can tell. Certainly, the pandemic has... Uh, sort of worked as a sort of miracle, a sort of glass, you know, through the looking glass feel like on one side was old life. And now we're through the looking glass into a sort of a new post pandemic life where everything looks and feels slightly different. So imagine if we completely abolished exams. I kind of feel like I ought to play John Lennon's Imagine now. I'm not going to sing. That's bad. Uh, To discuss this potential brand new world, I'm joined on the line by Susan Roberts from Witch School Advisor, who is not just saving you from me singing Imagine, but is also going to be the voice of reason. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on Microsoft Teams. How are you? Very well, thank you. And I'm disappointed not to be hearing your John Lennon impressions. (laughs) Just loud, Georgia. Don't stop on my account. You have no idea how bad my singing voice is. It's it's really bad. Zena's like, don't sing. Um, So why why are exams so much work and pressure for students? You know why why can't we prep our children? Why are they such a crescendo moment every single for every single pupil every single year? I think it's a, a really good question. And I think really this is a matter of perspective when we really look at it, isn't it? Because for these young people, and we're talking about, with well, A-levels, we're talking about 17, 18-year-olds um, moving into adulthood, but still very much young people um, who have not been out in the, the big world of work and all of that just yet, they are quite often led to believe that this is the crescendo, as we say, this is the point that is going to be the deciding factor for their success. Um, this is going to be what decides, do they get into the university of their choice? And if they don't, what then? If they don't get into that university course, then they don't get to follow the career that they're aiming for or or to have those doors open to them. Um, there is this, this belief that we allow to exist, um, that, that that is going to be the turning point for them. And quite frankly, I think for any of us, Adults or, or young people or, your ch- or children, um, if we're put in that position where we believe that, you know, that hour out of that particular day after years and years of study is going to be that point, we'd all feel that way, I think. So I think it really is about that it's a build up in how we how we look at it, as well as, that, of course, the enormous workload and the challenges that come with it that can create a lot of the stress and pressure for these young people. 
I mean, what should we be doing to make exams less stressful for our children? Because I really want to highlight that I think in some ways they slightly need to be stressful in order to scare children into revising. Like, I think you kind of need to go, these are a big deal, child. You do need to focus because, you know, they, you are going to be judged on them ultimately. And I think that that, you know, it, it, I suppose it's that balance, isn't it? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there is, um, you know, there's, there's a variety of purposes for having exams. And certainly one of those purposes um, for tests in general throughout schooling is that motivating factor, isn't it? It's that, oh, my goodness, I better open that book now rather than waiting another few weeks, because if I don't, then then what? Um, people are going to see what I don't know, the grade is going to be there, whether that's the big final grade or not. Um, so absolutely. In the current system that we have, particularly in the, uh, the English national curriculum, which is uh, quite dominantly used in the UAE for a lot of their schools here, that certainly is the case because the bulk of those A-levels, uh, the bulk of the assessment process is in that final exam. Um, the, you know, young people do need to realise the importance of it and buck up. But it's about balance, isn't it? I think it really needs to be about balance because the other side of that, I think it's a little easier to see from the perspective of an adult who's been living out in the world, um, working and all the rest of it for, for a bit longer, that actually success and failure, they're not opposites, are they? I mean, so many of the, the biggest success stories in the world, entrepreneurs and so on, they will point out that failure was part of their path to success. Um, so while I think it's important that, that young people do have that, that motivation to study hard and work hard, it cannot be seen as you know, the end of everything, the be all and end all if they don't work out, because then it gets serious. Then we're looking at mental health and well-being and all of these things. Um, and we want to consider what it's all for as well. They go to school to be educated, to develop their skills and their knowledge and their confidence and, and become adults um, who can, you know, survive out in the big wide world and, and be those capable people that we want them to be. Um, that's got to be a big part of it too and the reason they're at school. If everything is pointed towards passing of an exam the danger is that, that what we do is we train people young people in how to pass exams um which actually isn't really what the world of work is like it, it's not that it all comes down to that hour on that day so so i do think we've got to look at it and, and ensure that they have that perspective and that balance as well um which a lot of schools thankfully in the uae do a wonderful job of of maintaining and nurturing that mindset in young people as well now the other side of it is if fear is the only motivating factor to get our young people studying hard, perhaps we've got a bit of a problem there too. There needs to be other elements within that from, from schools, from parents too, to ensure that that is not the only factor that gets them going. That actually might be why I'm uh, here on the radio rather than uh, an educator, <laughs> because I'm like, just scare them into working. Keep her away from the school. It's all right. Don't worry. I'm not planning to go into teaching. It's going to be okay. Uh, I mean, <laughs> do you think that the exams matter as much as they used to? What do you think of my slightly random theory that the pandemic might have made us rethink the weight of exams uh, in the overall sort of academic standing of a student? Well, I think the pandemic made us all rethink just about every system that we work within in many respects it gave us all a step back and I think for educators for, for parents um, yeah I think you're in many ways you're quite correct in that that we're all reflecting on the things that we didn't question because 
it's just what we do, isn't it? It's how things work. It's how things are. And we do start to approach things and look at things a little differently. Um, whether there is going to be a world without exams in schools, um, I don't think there is going to be that world soon. Um, if anything, you know, the, the English national curriculum has geared more towards exams being the weight of the assessment over coursework in recent times rather than the opposite. Um, but there are more options out there. Um, I had the, the wonderful privilege of talking to some really, really incredible BTEC students um, in a Dubai school recently. And, and the BTEC is assessed totally differently. It is through, it's unit by unit. It is through practical tasks. Um, it's through uh, assignments and you know a variety of assessment models so they can build up those grades rather than boom, that, you know, that hour uh, after two years of hard work that can kind of make or break depending on, you know, how you're feeling and how things are going on that day quite often and how good you are at those exams. So I think it, diversity in education can only ever be a positive thing because not, not all students, not all people are really able to show what they're capable of, what they know in that fashion, in that style, um, and they don't all learn in that style. So I would certainly, from my perspective, welcome options for young people um, in the way that they learn and in the way that they're assessed. Really interesting, as always, uh, to get your insights there. Uh, Susan Roberts uh, from Which School Advisor, thank you very much indeed for your time. And it feels only appropriate that we should play out with this song, John Lennon, Imagine, Imagine a World Without Exams. Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much. Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and welcome back. Now, a young Emirati sustainability leader has spent three weeks in Antarctica observing the devastating effects of climate change. 24-year-old Athra Kamis stayed at the Concordia station, which is located high on the Antarctic plateau last month. And while she was there, scientists recorded a heat wave with record temperatures of minus 11.8 degrees Celsius, which is more than 40 degrees Celsius above the annual average. Just if we just pause for a moment, that that means it's normally like minus forty there. That is so cold. I mean, I know it's meant to be cold, but that's really cold. Uh, joining me now to discuss her experiences is Athra Kamis. She's a youth force sustainability future sustainability leader for Mazda, and she joins us on Microsoft Teams now. Hi, Athra. How are you doing? Well, this story started from Expo, actually. Oh wow! So yeah. Uh, I was an expo and attended I, an event where I met a couple of people who already went to Antarctica. I heard a lot of um, I, I heard their journeys, a lot of inspiring stories, and uh, they told me about what they have experienced there in Antarctica. And I noticed that the they came back with a new mindset. They have I noted the great effort they are making. 
uh, in our environment, the impact they are having in our communities uh, for the sake of our planet. So I knew that this expedition or this trip to Antarctica is a life changer and I should definitely go for it. And um, Masdar and Youth for Sustainability have supported me since day one. They were pushing me to do it. Um, they know that youth can um, actually make a great difference to fight, uh, to mitigate climate change. So um, it was a great opportunity that I, could, I couldn't miss. Uh, that I would learn a lot from and I, I actually did gain a lot of insights uh, that I came back here home to share and spread uh, the word of uh, sustainability, environment and climate change. It must have been particularly shocking to be there when it actually wasn't yeah. that cold. Yeah, I mean, minus 11, not not that bad. I mean, it was definitely cold for me, for everyone there. But true, as you mentioned, um, we experienced the heat wave. It's the unusual, unusual raise in temperature in Antarctica at this specific time of the year. So uh, we had a bit of mixed feeling where we were actually freezing from cold, but we're in the same time overwhelmed by the fact that this is not the right temperature to experience. I mean, how can other young people like yourself who who feel a passion for climate activism, you know, what can they do to help? You know, you've gone there, you've seen this extraordinary changes that are happening in Antarctica, the extraordinary effects of climate change firsthand. How do you think that, you know, not everyone can have that opportunity, but but how do you think that young climate activists can help? Of course, um, uh, we don't, we, uh, we can advocate about climate change. We can feel climate change actually everywhere. It's not necessary to be in Antarctica so we can feel it and act upon it. Um, and climate change is affecting every region on Earth. So we can advocate, raise awareness about climate change and we can make small uh, steps, but it actually matters. We can change our daily practices, move our life to be more sustainable in order to help our planet. So if everyone is, is, is taking a step, changing their behavior and pr- daily practices, moving toward more sustainability, uh, sustainable life, we would actually have a great, um, a great change and a great shift um, for the sake of, uh, of our Earth. Athra Kames, a Youth for Sustainability leader for Mazda. Thank you so much for your time. Amazing to talk about your experience uh, down in Antarctica with the penguins. There's some fantastic pictures online of you with penguins looking cold, uh, which is definitely worth taking a look at. Thank you, Athra. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Speak Um, to you soon. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there and welcome back to the programme. Moving our attention on to the subject of scholarships because Dubai is home to a number of clever students. And just last week, one of them made it into the news because Pritvik Sinhat, who is 17, uh, was offered five scholarships to establishments in the US uh, with the University of California, Berkeley, awarding him a remarkable 125,000 dirham annual Regents and Chancellors Scholarship. But is he a rare breed? How hard 
Or easy is it to get a scholarship? The Boston-based education resource Think Impact released some very interesting statistics from 2020. And it found that nearly 60% of families use scholarships to help pay for college. Uh, There were around 1.7 million private scholarships. 7% of students were likely to receive one. Uh, And there's you know, that means there's plenty of scholarships to go around, including for UAE students. So if your child is gunning for a scholarship, especially to an Ivy League university, now one man who can offer advice is Peter Davos. He is the founder and CEO of Hale Education. He joins me now live on Microsoft Teams. We're also live on Facebook. If you want to watch us, just go to at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. Hey, Peter, how are you doing? Hi, Georgia. How's everything? Very good indeed. It's wonderful to have you on the line. Have you been busy getting UAE students into universities in the United States? Very, very busy. Not just UAE students, but students from as far afield as uh, Indonesia and Brunei, Singapore, Taiwan, Lebanon, and other countries of the region, and not only into the US, but also into Canada. Um, So this is a very exciting month because all of the admissions offers have come out by April 1st. And students need to make their decision, their final decisions by May 1st. And now we're helping a lot of students actually negotiate um, their scholarships. So that's a little known fact. Um, You do have leverage or the students do have leverage when they receive scholarships and they can provide evidence of one scholarship offer to another university to hopefully secure more aid and get that university to match the aid. So there's um, a lot of nuances to this process. And uh, I'm very happy to be here to hopefully dispel some of the myths and um, provide a little bit of insight um, into the process for parents and students that may not be as familiar with it as they would like to be. Oh, I mean, that just sounds incredibly helpful. My nine-year-old literally had his birthday yesterday, uh, obviously quite a way off from university, but we are already saving. And my husband really wants the kids to go to university in the US, but it is prohibitively expensive. So how do you go about being one of those, you know, A-class students that, that attracts these Ivy League or even just, you know, normal universities to get scholarships? Yeah, I think it's um, not prohibitively expensive once you factor in the subsidies that exist through the form of aid and scholarships, but you should be planning early. Um, One thing that continues to surprise me here in the UAE is that parents don't think, generally speaking, about how they will pay for their student's education until maybe a year before the student applies or two years, where in the U.S. we're, you know, taught, um, you know, to start saving as soon as our, our kids are born. You want to make sure that you have enough money to provide the best education for your sons and daughters. And that's going to usually take more than a year or two of savings and planning. So the earlier you start planning and saving, the more manageable this uh, cost will be. Um, Secondly, I think it's really important to keep in mind that you don't know what a U.S. or Canadian university education will cost you until you receive your admissions offer. And at that point only, are you informed of any uh, awards that you receive um, in the form of merit scholarships, need-based aid, um, athletic scholarships are a little bit of a different animal, um, but you don't know what it will cost you until you get in. So you have students, or we have students that have been accepted to Boston University, which is a great university, um, that have received small scholarships from $5,000 per year, all the way up to full cost of attendance scholarships of $80,000 per year. So you don't know, you want to budget for the full amount and then obviously um, have that cost mitigated by any awards and then subsequently negotiate 
um, the scholarships that you do receive with the institution that you want to enroll in. Um, and that should be the process of operation um, for parents. Do your kids just have to be really, really clever? Like, and, and, like, and should you just not even be trying for a scholarship unless they really are one of those top students? It depends on where you're looking. I think there is um, a sense of entitlement on behalf of some students that they feel that automatically they deserve scholarships, that they're, you know, entitled to it. And it's, you know, it's not something that is something special or something that is earned, that is recognized, that is deserved. The truth is scholarships are a tool, right? Scholarships are a tool to entice students to enroll in a particular university that otherwise potentially would not be able to enroll there because they can't afford it or because they maybe have a more selective offer. So the more desirable you are on behalf of the university and the university's eyes, then the more scholarships you're going to be granted because they're giving you that money because you're truly special if you're receiving merit scholarships. Now, merit scholarships are awarded irrespective of a family's nationality, irrespective of a family's financial circumstances. They're awarded purely based on merit. Right. Um, and the universities that offer merit scholarships are not the Ivy League schools. The Ivy League schools offer only need based scholarships. OK, um, based on financial need. And not all of them can support the full demonstrated financial need of international students. Even a Stanford can't do that, which is a very well known university. So you have to be very careful how you play this, how you plan. If scholarships, if cost is an overriding consideration, in your journey, you must plan appropriately to, uh, you know, include schools that will offer you that support when you're creating your college list. You know, a lot of times students, uh, parents as well, they, they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? You cannot get into the top, top universities and then if you exceed a certain financial uh, need threshold, expect the university to pick up the tab. That's on you. Okay, so if I'm prepping my nine-year-old now, so I've got my savings account, uh, what do I need to, obviously he needs to do well and he needs to pass his A-levels or his international baccalaureate when it comes to it when he's 18. But should I be looking at other activities to make him look more attractive to these universities if I, if I want to get one of these merit-based uh, scholarships? Absolutely. So academic excellence is a prerequisite, strong standardized test scores, SATs, um, expectation, um, maybe not a requirement anymore, but still highly um, expected um, by the universities, especially the more selective ones. Um, the U.S. and Canadian universities are a little bit different in how they approach admissions. They take a very holistic view of the process and they care about who the student is, what they have to offer outside of the classroom, um, how they will enrich the campus, how they will contribute, and what is their story. There are sometimes 12, 14 pieces of writing that a student has to produce in addition to recommendations from teachers and interviews that play a very critical role in this process. Now, at Hale Education, we focus a lot on mentorship and developing those characteristics because the truth is 80% of students to top universities in the U.S. have the grades and have the test scores. Then it comes down to what else do you have to offer, what else do you have to talk about, whether it's through debate, music, you have a very compelling personal narrative, community service, your summer activities, internships, um, you know, entrepreneurial ventures that you've lost, uh, launched, excuse me, um, et cetera, et cetera. So everyone has really great grades and, and, and great scores if you're dealing at a certain level of selectivity at the universities. But then it comes down to who are you? How can you express yourself? And what do you have to contribute? What else is there to your profile? 
Right, my eldest boy is going to have a very busy weekend then. Thank you so much for all those insights. Uh, really, really appreciate your time and your, and, and your help, basically. Peter Davos, uh, the founder and CEO of Hale Education. Great to speak to you. Thank you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back. And as you just heard from Peter, many students here apply for scholarships basically because they're clever and they can. But in other parts of the world, many pupils need it because they basically can't afford to go to university. These are called need-based scholarships. Now, one such student uh, is Shima Akhtar, who's from Bangladesh, and she'll soon be starting at business school thanks to an 80% grant. And this is all despite growing up in a family with very little money to spare. And joining me on the line now is Shima herself. Hi, how are you, Shima? Good to speak to you. Hi, hi everybody. I'm Shima. I'm good, thank you. How are you, Georgia? I'm very well indeed. Ramadan Kareem to you. Tell me a Ram- little... To you. Oh, thank you. Uh, tell me a little bit about your childhood because you grew up in, in Dhaka. Can you tell us yes, a little yes. bit more about the environment you grew up in? Sure. So I grew up in a very big family. My family consists of six members and uh, my father was a day laborer and my mother was the second wife of my father. So we were in tragedy and my family was all, always in tragedy. And we used to live in slums for more. Uh, we used to live in slums and we used to share one room with six people. So... Wow. I never dreamed anything in my life, so I was never ambitious. I never, you know, courage to dream anything. But when I joined Maria Christina Foundation in the year 2007, I started dreaming. Before that, I had no, no ambitions, no dream. Did your, did your parents go to school? Uh, no, they didn't go to school. They didn't even know how school looks like. Um, and so when did you start your schooling? Because obviously, it, you know, the, the ability to go to business school or to university starts quite early on in a child's life. Uh, so I joined in the year 2007 and um, this foundation uh, started in the year 2005. So convincing my father, it took nearly two two years for me to get that mission in here. It was difficult for me to convince my father. So since then, I'm here. So that's the uh, Maria Christina Foundation, which helps uh, the children in Bangladesh go to school. I'm so pleased that you did uh, manage to persuade your father to let you go to school because uh, where are you now? You know, and, and, and how did you manage to first even hear of the school? Because that was back in 2007, wasn't it? Yes. So before that, I never been to school. I never saw how school looks like. Maria used to give us meal every day. So I was fond of the meals. That's why I used to go to school every day. It's not because of the study I love. It's not because of the study my parents told me to do. It's because of the food that Maria used to give. So this is uh, Maria Christina, who's a Dubai resident who, who helps children in the Bangladeshi community. And you must be, I mean, you must be one of the, her, her favorite stories, because if we fast forward to now, you've recently bagged a scholarship uh, for a business management school in Singapore. Yes. Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. I managed to get 80% scholarship in SPJ University for Singapore. You must be so excited. Yes, it's like I I just want to go and I just want to get my degree anyhow. For students, students like me who have, you know, just want to go to the university and get the degree. Again, 
just can't do it for the money, which is really hurtful and painful for a student. So, yeah. I mean, it's brilliant that the university has, has seen your situation and sorted out uh, 80% of the, the money for that. What are your career yeah. plans? What do you want to do? So now I want to be a businesswoman in my country uh, from a family like me. Never a woman became a, a businesswoman. So I want to become a businesswoman and show the people that, no, we can also do it. It's not just because you are in property, under property, you cannot do anything. You cannot do anything. You can do anything. How do your parents see you now that you must, I mean, you must have turned into a different person before their very eyes? Yeah. So before even coming to Dubai, I had to face a lot of problems because being a girl, it's not easy to you know step, step into another country and uh, studying. And it's not easy for my country. So my parents wasn't happy at all. My family wasn't happy at all. Nobody from my family knows that I'm coming. I, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like I told I will go anyhow. So it was like secretly I came. So nobody was happy then, but after knowing me that, yeah, I will go for my university, I will get the degree, now they are happy that, okay, just go for your dream. Now they are like, okay. But still my father is not happy with it, that I am in abroad, so, yeah. Gosh, that is interesting to hear that you have, you know, you also have that working against you. You know, you need to change your, you know, it's so difficult to change people's perspectives when they've grown up feeling that something is true. And, and then, you know, you come along and completely challenge that. It must be difficult yeah. within your family. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So this is also family pressure as well as the social pressure, I would say, because from the social pressure, it comes more on me. I can imagine. I mean, it is, I have to say, chatting to you, I'm quite a hardened journalist, but chatting to you, it is absolutely extraordinary to hear your story. And, and I'm so impressed. Um, so I Thank hope you, you go off to Singapore, have the time of your life. And um, I look forward to hearing about the many businesses that you set up in Bangladesh uh, when you come yeah. home in the future. So thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you very much. Ooh, that's you the wrong welcome. microphone. There we go. An absolute, uh, that's what happens. My brain gets scrambled when I get emotional uh, and I put down the wrong microphone. And uh, many thanks to Shima actor there uh, from Bangladesh. He will soon be starting at business school in Singapore and is an absolute inspiration to us all. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom. Now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 7. Hello there, welcome back. Now, this week's My Classroom feature takes us to Kenya in a rural part of Nairobi where resources are very, very limited indeed. Uh, we do this My Classroom feature each week. Uh, it's one of my favourites because it takes us out of Dubai and it takes us out of the UAE and out of the normal uh, all the way to a completely different country and, and to a school in a completely different place. Uh, now, Zina has been speaking to an extraordinary man who heads this school in Kenya. Kenya and joins me now to introduce the feature. Yes, Georgia. So the school is called Kirigu Primary School. It's a public school in the Kenyan capital. Uh, its head teacher is Francis Marui, uh, a really good man who is running the school against all odds. And they have 1,050 students from uh, preschool all the way up to eighth grade, but they've only got 18 teachers. Wow. And, yeah, 18 to 1,000 students. So I asked him how many students each teacher could accommodate in one class. We have between 56 to 75. The highest is 76. 
So up to seventy-six students in one classroom. That must be so challenging for teachers. We don't have enough teachers in our school. Particularly, we lack classrooms.、Eh? We are supposed to have about twenty-four、uh, classrooms for us to accommodate all the children comfortably between maybe forty-five and fifty per class. That's another problem space. So I guess these two problems result from funding. That's typically where you know I'm from the Philippines, and we have public schools, and they also lack funding from the government. Is that what it is? Yeah. Now there is not enough funding because the funding from the ministry, in most cases, it caters only for the tuition and the operation. Then my catchment area is it's a rural setup. We find. There are villagers there who are very poor, such that they cannot agree to do something to the school. Could you give us an idea what kinds of jobs do parents have there? It is a rural part of Kenya, and you said that it is a, a poor village. These are people who go to other residents to wash their clothes,、uh, to do maybe farm work. There are people who go for building, for casual labourers. And you find the, the average earning is is about three hundred shillings, Kenyan shillings, three hundred, maybe to five hundred. Average, we can say they can earn about two thousand. Five hundred Kenyan shillings. That's about fifteen dirhams, and they can make as much as two thousand Kenyan shillings, which works out to sixty-three dirhams a month. I mean, I won't be surprised if some kids do drop out because they have to work and help their parents. Does that happen? Yes, and we remove them by force because if we find where they have been, they are working. We we go there by force, and we make sure that we take them to the education authority. We take them to some of the secondary schools, especially the day schools which are near where they are, so that they don't say, "I don't have A, B, C, D." So these kids、uh, would have been in their teens, right? Fifteen, sixteen. Yes, yeah, teenagers. Yes. Are you in charge of feeding the children, or do they bring food from their parents? I mean, now that I know,、uh, you know, about the average income of a family in rural Nairobi, I'm guessing that would be a problem. The member of parliament has organized for a feeding program in his constituency, and、uh, this feeding program is called Food for Education. Children are supposed to pay 15 shillings. It's a very minimal amount of money, and the children are able to get lunch.、Uh, that is the parents who are supposed to do that. Out of the 1,000 children I have, about、uh, 600 are able to pay. The other 400, they are not able to pay, and you find them. Sharing with those who are able to pay, you see, they beg for food.、Eh? 15 Kenyan shillings is about、uh, 13 cents. I really hope the situation improves. But kudos to you for making it work and not leaving anyone hungry. Now, I'd like to know if、uh, you have access to any, you know, form of technology,、uh, laptops, tablets that the children can use to be able to learn.、Uh, in our school, we have eight devices for learners. Then we have two laptops for the teachers. What we don't have in our school is internet and electricity. But、uh, I'm 
trying very much. I have gotten some funding for electricity. And now I'm trying to see how we can also connect all the classrooms to have electricity inside. That is the lighting and also the socket for the use of the devices. We can maybe download some of the learning resources. We try to buy and the hotspot to maybe download a few teaching and learning materials from the internet, but it is very costly. Francis, I'm so surprised that you got through the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic required, you know, manpower from the teachers, uh, internet to be able to connect with children even when they're, they were home. How did you survive the pandemic mm. or did you have to uh, completely halt uh, teaching? I'm telling you, the families cannot afford smartphones which can communicate. And that's why the ministry, uh, the Teacher Service Commission, came up with remote learning. How do you undertake remote learning when you don't have, one, the devices, two, the internet? So the whole of that time, most public schools did not have any remote learning. But when we opened, we were able now to to try and cover what the children had lost. But you know, it is also impossible. That's why we have a crashing uh, program of teaching in order to cover that one year which was lost during the pandemic. Well, we pray that uh, it's ending in December. Coming next year, 2023, we are going to resume back to the normal teaching timetable. Francis, you're an amazing individual. I'm surprised that, you know, you're still standing after all the challenges that you've faced and are still facing. All the best to Kirigu Primary School. My last question would be, how do you keep or encourage the kids to keep going despite all of these challenges that they face when learning? Because these children are living in slums, I normally talk to them, and especially the big ones, that the only savior is education. It is only through education that they are able to remove their parents from the situations they are in, the slum, and take them to the suburb and the well-to-do estate in our city, which they know education is the unifying factor in life. Whether the child comes from a rich family or from a poor family, When you perform well, both of you will go to the same secondary school, a good one. Both of you will go to the same university, a good one. And they are even better than those from rich families. Because these poor children, uh, they are very disciplined. They have got a chance to beat even the upper class. They they have taken that eh, because we are performing very well. Uh, those who are doing exams, they are doing very well, and their parents are very happy. That's Francis Marui, who is the head teacher of Kirigu Primary School in Kenya, in uh, a rural area in Nairobi. Absolutely amazing interview. Really, really powerful stuff. And one of the reasons uh, why I love doing these My Classroom features, because they really uh, give you an opportunity to, to sort of expand your perspective, I'd say. 
Exactly. If you're if you're a parent driving back home from the school run, and you and your kid are listening to this, you know, tell us what you think. Chat with your kids about uh, our my classroom segment, and and just find out what they think of other classrooms uh, yeah, outside really, the UAE. Yeah, it's really really interesting. This is Eye on Education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people. We have been. Uh, off air discussing that amazing school in Kenya uh, that we featured this week in my classroom. Z, how did you find out about it? Well, I actually found out uh, about this school through a Dubai resident. His name is Matthew Benjamin. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Capes. They make sustainably uh, made uniforms. They supply here in the UAE and uh, further afield. And he's flying to Kenya soon with some very good news. For every child that we sell a uniform to, we then provide a free one to a child in need. And the reason that we do this is that studies have shown that by providing a free uniform to a child who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford one, it can reduce absenteeism by up to 62%. So over the past 12 months, we've been able to manufacture over 500 uniforms, and we've done that locally in Kenya to support that community. And then we've been able to provide those for free to children at Karugi Primary School that Francis describes as is very needy. Now that is so cool because they're not a charity, they're a company, but they're mm-hmm. doing that same thing that the to- the Tom's Shoes did, where if you buy a uniform, then they give one for free. Yeah, it's a great initiative. It really, really is. Uh, so what else did Matthew tell you about? Well, he's very passionate about making social impact through her, his uniforms. And he says that these uniforms are made with people and the environment in mind. Firstly, we use sustainable materials to reduce our impact as much as possible. We then partner with ethically audited factories that can ensure they pay fair wages and treat their employees fairly. We then calculate the impact of making those uniforms, looking at the water, energy and emissions that are emitted. And then we offset that unavoidable impact by supporting a deforestation project in Africa that keeps trees in forests and uh, protects wildlife. Wow, he thinks about every single bit of the process, doesn't he? Yes, uh, I, you know, uniforms are made in sweatshops, as we know, but it's this true. is different. Gosh, that, I mean, that is so interesting. And you know that the um, the amount of water that fashion uses is going to be one of the top Top, you know, really hot topics going forward because it's something like a swimming pool amount of water is ta- is what is how much is needed to make one pair of jeans. Just Whoa. to put it in perspective, like it's really strat- a stratospheric amount. Wow. So so interesting to hear about how he wants to make this a sustainable project as well as a uh, you know as well as one with impact. Yes, and this will definitely make the students of Kirigu Primary School very happy. And he's flying there to Kenya to support the deforestation efforts there and provide the children of the school 500 uniforms. Amazing. And he sums up his advocacy with some very inspiring words. I believe that if we are going to fight climate change and, and make this world a better place, then we need to be more connected to the things that we do the things that we buy, the things that we wear, and the impact that this has environmentally and socially. Um, So this program is really about connecting children to the impact that they can have. So hopefully as they grow up, they become change makers, you know, policy makers and consumers that make better decisions than, than we've unfortunately made to get ourselves into this position. 
Very, very heartwarming stuff. Uh, Matthew Benjamin there, the founder and CEO of CAPES. That's K-A-P-E-S. And that brings us to the end of rather a heartwarming hour on the agenda. My goodness me, there's no hard-nosed journalists here. We've all been slightly teary for the last few minutes. It Uh, was a bit heavy. It was a bit (laughs) heavy. uh, But as uh, an amazing eye on education, as always, we will be uh, doing this segment again, this special segment, next Friday from 10 till 1 p.m. Make sure you tune in. You guys are all listening, Parents, teachers, students, if you have topics in mind that you want us to discuss for ION Education, please get in touch because we're always getting our ideas from you. And that's all from the ION Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.